Welcome to Mile High Magazine. Mile High Magazine takes a look at the issues and people shaping events in Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. Here's your host, Murphy Houston. And welcome into another edition of Mile High Magazine. I am Murphy Houston. Happy Sunday. It's always a pleasure to have you guys stop by and share some information about some good things going on. Today we have Nancy Lewis in, who's the executive director of COVA. And Nancy, welcome to Mile High Magazine. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We know that National Crime Victims Rights Week starts like tomorrow, right? Monday. Correct. And that's kind of why you're here, because you're with COVA, and we want to explain how that all works. And what is COVA? What does COVA stand for? It's the Colorado Organization for Victim Assistance. We are a membership agency of all those people who come in contact with crime victims. And what does that mean, you come in contact with crime victims? Explain that. Well, if you start at law enforcement, the district attorney's office, probation, DOC, the Department of Corrections, um, domestic violence shelters, uh, rape crisis lines, child advocacy centers, all those people come in contact with crime victims. Really? And you kind of help manage all of that and help these people out? More than anything, we do a lot of training to make sure that anybody that comes in contact with a crime victim has proper training and is trauma-informed and understands what the resources are. And you, when you say training, is it like health officials or is it just regular people like me that maybe have a neighbor that's been a crime victim? The training that we do is for professionals in the field. The field is very, very young. It's only about 30 years old. Um, and a lot of them are volunteers. We started out with mostly volunteers. Uh, we now have a lot of professional people in the field that there's money available. Um, and so we do um, most Agencies require that you have 40-hour training, and a lot of the agencies do that themselves. Uh, we offer an academy, 40 hours long. We offer an advanced academy, and we have one of the largest uh, victim advocate conference in the United States. Wow. Um, you guys have been doing all of this for 30 years? Well, actually, about 24. <laughs> really? Well, And you've been there all along the way, haven't you? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Oh, I, I got to tell you, I've been doing radio in Denver for 35 years, and I've never heard of you before. That's not right. Well, we it's real interesting because we do a lot of work. We um, One of the other things that we're known for other than training is that we usually go in and help uh, communities that are under-resourced when there's mass tragedy, Columbine, Aurora shooting, Bailey. Um, really? The Oklahoma, yeah, the Oklahoma. Um, bombing? Bombing trials, right. yeah. Right. And so what are you doing when you're involved with those particular tragedies? You Well, there's two, there's two levels. So one is which we bring in more people, and sometimes we bring in more financial resources to help with the victims. Wow. Good for you guys. So we're saying it's National Crime Victims' Rights Week, all this week coming up. What does that mean? Well, it is a week set aside by the federal government to bring awareness to the fact that there are crime victims. Um, and that there's another side of, uh, of crime. We deal an awful lot with offenders, and they're incarcerated or, or, or dealt with in one way. And it wasn't until about 30 years ago, about 36 years ago, we started to talk about the rights of crime victims. When um, President Reagan was shot, he, right. he became a crime victim, and he had no rights. <laughs> Is that, whoa, wait a minute, he's the president. <laughs> he's the president, of, he was the president of the United States and he had no rights. He created a commission uh, that went out and interviewed crime victims and they came back and said, if I were a crime victim again, I'm not sure that I would report because the treatment I got in the system was worse than the, the crime itself. Really? Really. Uh, See the look on my face? Yeah, right. I'm somewhat shocked. Well, in you know, in those times, you you couldn't go in the courtroom, so you didn't get to participate in the trial of an event that affected your life for the rest of your life. Um, we didn't have resources for people. A rape crisis, a, ra a rape person, a person who had been raped, maybe asked to go home in hospital scrubs. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, you didn't. You didn't participate in any of the the judicial system. How wrong was that? It was pretty wrong, and that it's changed quite a bit. 
and Colorado is a leader in the change. Well, what is Colorado's history of serving crime victims? Um, well, in uh, nine, 1993, we passed the victims' rights. Well, I'm going to back up a little bit okay. and, ta- and talk about um, what happened um, when President Reagan did this commission. The very first recommendation was to have a constitutional amendment, a federal constitutional amendment that protected crime victims just like offenders were protected. And um, it was right on the heels of the ERA, and it passed in the legislature, but not in the states. Okay. And so about 20 people came together and said, what we need to do is we need to go around and make sure that there are state constitutional rights so that we have 32. So when it becomes a federal amendment, we can get it passed. People will understand what it is. Good idea. And Colorado was, I believe, the third uh, state to pass a constitutional amendment. We passed it by 82% of the vote. Sure. Um, what so it, it has to go to the public to vote. Yes. Is what you're saying. Citizens yeah. like you Citizens. were. Citizens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we have a constitutional amendment, which roughly says that a crime victim of a violent crime, of a crime against persons, has the right to uh, be notified. And there's a whole list of things that they have to be notified about the right to be present anytime that the defendant is present in the courtroom or as part of the process, and the right to speak anytime the defendant is going to be released. Oh. Yeah. Because you hear that happening, and you, I often wonder, how do, how do they do that? How do yeah. they? Now I know. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and, and Colorado also leads the, the way in that um, we have, um, we have um, what I want to say, repercussions if an agency doesn't follow the victim's rights. So um, if you your rights weren't met, you can make file a complaint with the um, Department of Public Safety. And what happens is their system change. Like if law enforcement doesn't do something, they'll go in and do training for the law enforcement. Right. Um, and then we also have a, a crime victim's legal clinic that if during it happening, your rights aren't being met. You can go and get an attorney assigned to you to make sure your your rights are met. Like a public defender type thing? Sort of. Sort of like that? Sort yeah. Of, yeah, sort of like that. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's quite as big as the public, <laughs> or it isn't quite as well-funded as public defenders are. Well, you know, there's probably people listening to us right now wondering, why are victims' rights so important? And I'm one of them. But I guess it's because they need to have a say. That's the first thing that comes to my head after our discussion here. Um, they're important because when a person has been a crime victim, their life is changed for the rest of their life. And to be part of the process is very, very important to crime victims, not all crime victims, but to have that right. Our, our system was out of balance in that a crime victim used to have to sit out in the hall while the tri- trial went on. Right. That and was wrong for sure. That was wrong. Yeah, uh, a person didn't ha- didn't have the right to say how the crime had affected them, and now they do. I mean, when they talk about impact statements at the at the end of a trial, that's what they're talking about. It's for somebody to say, "This is how your actions harmed me," um, and that's a very important thing for some crime victims. So while the trial is going on with the the offender and the crime victim, do they have a chance to come in and talk? Uh, be questioned by lawyers or so the jury can hear what they think or is that not included with the trial? Well, <laughs> it depends on where they were when the crime happened. If they're part of what happened in the crime, they can be subpoenaed, right. have to appear, go through cross-examination just like any other witness. Okay. Um, if If my son were murdered 300 miles away, I would have the right to be in the courtroom, but not to be, not to give testimony about anything. Because you're a crime victim, even though your son was murdered. I don't have anything to do with the crime. Yeah, exactly. But you're still kind of involved. Absolutely, the, absolutely, I'm involved as a mom. Yeah, right. I see what you're saying. Gosh, I never even thought about that. That's pretty amazing. Well, most people don't know that. Most people, thank God, are not victims of crime. Yes, thank God. (laughs) So they don't have any awareness until that comes about with their family, their neighbor. Um, It it becomes pretty difficult. 
It's amazing how you might get involved, though, when you least expect it. Absolutely. And now you know you have some rights. So what rights do Colorado victims have? Well, they basically have the crime to be notified, and that's, like I say, a whole litany of things. All the resources that are available to them, if the the offender's going to be released, uh, what the resources are in the community to help them. So there's, like I say, a whole litany of of those. Um, The right to be present. And that's a, for many, many crime victims, that's very, very important. And then the right to speak. Yeah. yeah. So when they speak at, at the end of the trial, are they speaking to the offender directly or is it? They usually speak to the judge, but the, the, the message is for the offender. Yeah. And he's not there or she's not he's, there. No, the offender's there. Oh, yeah. So they get to really hear what they've yeah. done to these poor victims. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, good job with what you're doing there. Yeah. That's fine. That's fine. So what happens if a victim doesn't get rights? Well, that's where they get to. Um, they get to go to um, the the Department of Public Safety or the criminal justice system, and file a complaint. It's four pages long. Um, so we have people who are trained there to talk them through sort of what the complaint is. Oh, the one one right that I left out, which is the most important, is the the right to be treated with fairness, dignity, and respect. Explain what that means. Mm-hmm. Well, that means that if you're a detective and I call you 20 times and you don't return my phone call, you haven't treated me with respect. Oh, okay. good point. Yeah, good I get point. it. I get it now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I'll bet that happens. <laughs> oh, yes, it does happen. Even now, after all these rules oh, yeah. have been around. Oh, yeah. Um, that you don't notify me of a, a court date. Um, all those are, are sort of rights that you get. Right that you get to complain about. The, the Division of Criminal Justice, they deal with system change, so they will go in and make sure that that doesn't happen to another crime victim. The clinic can go in and, at, and I'll give you an example. We had a, a, a sexual assault victim who the defense attorney wanted to have all the emails between her and her mother, the victim and her mother, we took it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, no, that's your right of privacy. You, that has nothing to do with the crime. Oh. And so what happened is while, the, while that was going on, we were able to go in, not we, but the clinic was able to go in and stop that and make sure that the crime victim had the privacy of her emails to her mother. Well, that was kind of a intense moment, I'll bet. Yes. Yeah, well, it's got to be done. Yeah. So what happens to these officials that don't treat the crime victim properly do they get punished or no no not not in the way you would think of punishment what happens let's say for instance the detective that didn't return the phone calls what would happen is that um the division of criminal justice if they had found fault with the law enforcement they would go they would say how do how do we correct that what happened you know, so do you does do all your detectives need training? Do you need to change a policy? What needs to happen so this never happens again? Wow, that gets your attention though if you're yeah. working there. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I don't imagine any bosses want to be called in on that deal. <laughs> no, they do not. But we have. I I need to say that Colorado has a very very good relationship with our law enforcement, with our district attorneys, so that it, that. Um, when we first started, it was seen as punishment. It is now more or less seen with, okay, how how do we correct this? Because it, they want to do right. it right. It's an education. Yeah. It's not a punishment. Right. Big difference. Yeah, big difference. <laughs> That's good. We're talking with Nancy Lewis, who's the executive director of COVA. And give me what COVA is again. I'm going to write that down. It's the Colorado Organization for Victim Assistance. Organization for Victims Assistance. Assistance. And you've been around for a long time. Yes, We're we finding have. out. Yes, and it's good to know that you're out there and doing the right thing because it's going to be National Crime Victim Rights Week this, this week. week. Yes. How long have you been doing that? Um, it has existed since 1981. So wow, a lot of a lo- years. A lot of years. <laughs> yeah. And once again, you don't hear much about that. Right. Are there any celebrations in Washington or what uh, There's happens? a huge celebration in Washington. Um, there are awards that are given. In fact, there's a very um, wonderful sort of compliment uh, one of our detectives, uh, Mark Slatsky, out of the Wheat Ridge uh, Police Department, will be doing this. He will do the keynote speak, 
speech in Washington, D.C. this year. Really? Yeah. I mean, is that before like hundreds and hundreds of people? Well, it's before a lot of people. I've never, well, actually, I've gone to the event once. And who attends that event? Um, is it victims? Uh, it's victims. Politicians? It's people, uh, politicians, people in the field. They're, in, in Colorado, we have a conference with a thousand people every year. Um, there is a conference in Chicago this week that has 2,000 people at it. It is a new field. Crime victims uh, advocacy is a brand new field where we hire people, we train them, and they, they go out on call when there's a crime that's been committed. It seems like, is it is it growing because of the awareness of crime? It just seems like now when you turn on the television, oh my gosh, it's one crime after another. Has that caused this growth you're just mentioning? Um, I think there are a lot of reasons. There's funding, and, right. and it's um, the funding does not come out of tax dollars. Uh, there's a thing called the Victims of Crime Act, which if you were a bank or a pharmacy and you were found guilty and fined, that those monies would go into a, um, a fund, and then that fund comes back out to the states and funds a lot of our, our activities. Wow. Well, let's talk about the states a minute. You mentioned that you had this big vote many years ago, but do victims have rights in every state? Are they all different in every state? They're different in every state. There are 37 states that have a Crime Victims Act, that they have legislation that says crime victim gets rights. One of the differences between Colorado is we have a system that checks that and that we have, when we created our legislation, we also have a way to fund it. Um, if you've ever had a traffic ticket. Not me. Yeah, not you, <laughs> never. You've paid into the uh, bail fund, the, uh, let me see, it's the victim of, Bail, B-A-I, it's Victim Assistance and Law Enforcement Fund. You probably pay $5, $7, and that helps fund the the bedrock of our programs. Wow, that's crazy. So I'm sitting here as our conversation with all the wonderful things you're doing with victims' rights. Who would ever be against victim rights? Is there people out there that oppose it? Absolutely. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, enlighten us. <laughs> well, it's usually people who believe that by ha- by crime victims having rights, offenders' rights will be diminished. Uh And that's absolutely not our intention at all. I believe that if I were were an offender, I would want to have every one of the rights that are afforded to me by the Constitution. Um, But we also want to even the scale so that uh, crime victims have rights. And they didn't before. They did not before. So nobody else is against crime victims except the offenders and the people that are around them. They they don't want the crime victims to have a say. Well, it's not that they don't want crime victims to have a say. They are fearful of crime victims having rights that will will oversee the offenders' rights. How would that be? Well, let let us take um, for... An offender has the right to have a fair and speedy trial. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And a lot of times what happens is that if you postpone and postpone and postpone, for instance, in a a sexual assault on a child, defense attorneys like to postpone, postpone, postpone. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you, you know, you lose witnesses. People don't have good memories. They move on with their life. Oh, I get it. So, so if a crime victim has the same right, which we actually don't have the same right in the same, at the same level, it is to say you cannot postpone this 20 times. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. It's like, it kind of balances the playing field, right? Absolutely. As it should be. Absolutely. So did you guys have a lot to do with that? With what? Getting that field balanced with well, all what you do. Well, it's still not quite as balanced as we would like it to be. And we, could, no, yeah, we're down go. at the legislature quite a bit. Well, let's talk about COVA's role in National Crime Victims Rights Week. What are you guys doing? Well, this week we're having, um, there has been a very large uptick of hate crimes in, in the United States and yes, here in Colorado. Unfortunately. Um, we have a 96 year old, Fanny Starr, is a Holocaust survivor is going to speak on Monday, tomorrow, um, at the Annam Center at noon. Really? Yeah. A Holocaust survivor. Well, yes. they're victims, too. Absolutely. Well, big time. Absolutely. 
Wow, what is she going to talk about? That's exciting. That's historical. Yeah, she's going to talk about her experience as being a survivor. Oh my! All these years. Yeah. And she's ninety six. She's ninety six. She's a, she's a um. How do I want to say a whippersnapper? <laughs> wow. I hope I'm whipping snapping like she is at ninety six. Yeah, for, for sure. Yeah. And so she'll just talk about what's happened to her in her life and the effects all these years yes, from yeah. the Holocaust. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm, my mind is just racing with. Yeah. I, I'd love to hear that. Is that open to the public? It's or? open to the public, absolutely. And the Annum Center is at 1330, 1330 Fox Street at noon. At noon. Is like a little lunch going to be served? Or oh, no, no, we're not serving lunch. <laughs> oh, but it is open if you want to come in here, what she's oh, got to ab- say. Absolutely. That, and, that, that is great. So let, let's talk about why this National Crimes Victims Rights Week is so important. Is it just awareness or is it information? What is it? It's awareness more than anything. It's to, it's a, a day, a week set aside where we talk about crime victims um, and they do it all over the United States and every, most every judicial district in Colorado has an event. Uh, um, Adams County has an event. The um, Arapahoe County has an event. Oh, really? On a smaller scale? Yeah, yes. More locally focused, I would yes. imagine. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of activities. Yes, it is. So what else are you guys doing besides uh, the lovely 96-year-old lady speaking tomorrow? what we do every day when we have, can I talk a little bit about our programs? Do it. Yeah. Um, we have a, uh, what is commonly called a minority intern program because victim services was started really as volunteers, white round women, I like to say, cause right. I'm a white round woman <laughs> and proportionately crime victims, just like there are more minorities in prison, proportionately there are more, crime victims who are minorities. So uh, what we did is that we hire uh, underserved population students who are in school to work 20 hours a week. We pay them. They work in in a service agency. It uh-huh. could be a domestic shelter. It could be a rape crisis line. It could be a DA's office. For part-time, we pay them, and they do it for a year. And so the agency gets some benefit. They train these students. And the students, about 57% of our students get hired in the field. That's awesome. Yeah. Is that a high school level thing, a college, college. or both? both. College, it's not both. Be. So not this, is, this is something they think they want to do for the rest they of their have, life. They have an idea that yeah. they might want to do it. Yeah. But you pay them to learn if they want to do, do it. it. Yeah. What a great idea. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, we do public policy. We do a lot of public policy. We have... Um, we do a lot of training. We have the conference. We have the two academies. And then we do about 80 trainings across the state in the Victims' Rights Amendment, vicarious trauma, um, cultural considerations. Um, we, will, we will come out and train or get somebody to come in and train in whatever uh, a region needs. Well, if I'm sitting out thinking, well, I'd like to get involved with that. How can you get involved? Do you take volunteers? Are they only paid positions? And how many folks are doing all this work? Uh, there are thousands across the state. Um, you can volunteer uh, with us. It's paperwork, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can make a donation to us. That would be lovely. Um, but we really, uh, for instance, I was a volunteer with Boulder Sheriff's Department for 12 years. And what I did was on call. When there was a crime, the cops would call me. I would go out and deal with the crime victim and make sure that their rights were, that they had information about their rights. So and that's, deal how with their crime. that's how you started. That's how you started. Yeah. That's it's interesting. You must have saw some crazy things. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, and not good. Any mm. of it. So anyhow, so if I want to help volunteer. What is there? Phone numbers? A website I can check out? What is there? Well, people could certainly call our office or go to our website. But really, the volunteer opportunities are in your community. I see. And so, if you wanted some ideas about how to do that, we could sort of talk you through what is it you want. Like, if you wanted to be a first responder, like with law enforcement. If you wanted to, you know, sit with people. If you wanted to babysit kids while. Their, their mom was, you know, doing an intake at a domestic violence shelter. So there's all kinds of opportunities. We can sort of get you headed the right direction because we know of all the agencies. Right. Well, yeah. share that phone number so okay. we can get it's it out there. 303-861-1160. Okay. There's something coming up on April 9th. Do I have that right? Some event that you guys are involved with for National Crime Victims Rights Week, an event on April 9th. 9th. And, and, and it fits in with the Holocaust Remembrance Day we just talked about. But Yeah. Well, uh, it's April 9th is the thing at the Annum Center, the Rose Andum Domestic Violence Center at noon. And it's with Fanny Starr. 
um, who's a 96. The one we talked about right, earlier. Yeah. So it's the yeah. same event. It's the same event. Because yes. what's going on tomorrow? Didn't you say Monday or something? Oh, I'm sorry. Monday, tomorrow. Yeah, that's tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that the ninth? I could, maybe it is the ninth. I'm not even looking <laughs> at my calendar. I'm not thinking that far. That would be the ninth. <laughs> that would be the ninth. Oh, gosh. It's great. So what else do you want people to know about what you're doing with COVA and helping the state of Colorado? Things you want to talk about? Well, there's a we have another project, which I'm really proud of. It's called the... Victim Offender Dialogue, and we're partnered up with uh, the University of Denver to do an evaluation of how that process helps crime victims. And I'll, I'll give you a for instance. Yeah, give me a for, for instance, instance or how that process works. works I'm thinking, I don't quite get that. that yeah. yeah, well, um, oftentimes the offender has answers to questions that only the offender has, and it takes a, it has to be um, victim requested victim the victim has to lead the thing there you usually go through somewhere around three to six months preparation of both the offender and the crime victim and once you've gone through that preparation um you have a sit-down conversation and you can say what happened when my son died oh i see do you see what i'm saying yes and and you can say you can look the offender straight in the eye and say this is how your actions have affected me for the rest of my life. And for the, for the most part, what crime victims want is they don't want the offender to ever do this again. Yes. They don't want anybody to ever hurt like they've been hurt. And they get a say. Yeah. I mean, just to get that off your chest that's yeah. been festering inside of you, that yeah. some crime has happened to you or somebody you yeah. know, and I just got to talk about it. Yeah. And I think that helps them, doesn't it? The yes. victims that kind of get that's that what, out. That's absolutely what we're evaluating is what, what is the what is the percentage of help you get from going through this process? And what do the offenders do? I mean, that's one. I mean, you're uh, sitting across the table from them or, or are they in different rooms and they're <laughs> no, on they're TV sitting, screens or what? No, they're sitting right across. They're wow. sitting right and, and again, it's it doesn't happen in every case. I mean, there has to be a lot of preparation. There have to, on both sides, be agreement to do this. And most often, um, the offenders come away from it changed also. Yeah. And you've seen that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So when you say change, that means they'll never do anything again? I mean, most of the offenders, maybe not most, but some are going to jail. Jail. So, well, it usually happens when they're in jail. So it, yeah, yes, it usually happens. That's when you, you get to, you get years, to your face. To, yeah, years ah, afterwards. I see, because I wasn't sure. Of, well, this crime just happened. They're not. Well, in some of the some of the not so horrendous cases, yes, I yeah. have. I have a very dear friend whose son stole a car, wrecked a car, injured people, who went through this, and I need as a friend of his mother watching him understand what his actions caused was, I think, life-changing for him. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, you don't think about that. And I'm no. sure a lot of offenders don't think about that because they don't care, I, particularly at the moment of the crime. Right. They're not thinking about, oh, gee, what am I doing to that other person? person? Yeah. No. Wow. What a great thing. So you're doing that with DU? We're doing that with DU. And that's yeah. relatively new? That's very, very new, yeah. Wow. And it seems to be very successful. It's very, very successful. Another thing, we've partnered with the Attorney General's Fund, uh, the Attorney General's Office to do what we call a healing fund. We're setting up a a, a nonprofit and going to collect money. Um, Colorado has had a dearth of mass tragedies, and what happens the the instant it happens is that there are a lot of needs that aren't taken, there aren't resources for at the immediate time. Like for Columbine, kids needed backpacks, glasses, sure, sure. keys to their I cars. I see what you're saying, right. Uh, we flew people in. There's usually not those resources. So the healing fund would be created to have that in ready to go. We will be raising money for the healing fund so that- And how do you raise that? Just ask for donations? We just ask for donations all the time. Well, where do you go for that? How do I send you money? You send it to the Colorado Organization for Victim Assistance, 1325 South Colorado Boulevard, Suite 508B, Denver 80222. Well, you got that down. Yes, I do. <laughs> I bet you've said that a few times. I have, oh, I have. Oh, oh my gosh. Gee, Nancy, you've really enlightened me. I mean, I hope you've enlightened all our friends, too, that well, all the good work you're doing and that you're even out there, COVA. Yeah. And that's a great organization. Yeah. Well, 
National Crime Victims Rights Week. Now that if you see it happening, you're going to see it on television, I'm sure. Now you know what it's all about, and you know it's happening here in the state of Colorado. And Nancy Lewis, the executive director of COVA, what a pleasure to have you on Mile High Magazine today. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, we'll love to have you back sometime. All right. And thank you guys all for listening. Have a wonderful weekend, and thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Adam Morgan. Although many non-Jewish people have heard the term the Holocaust and know that it was a major horrible situation that happened to European Jewish people, not often do we hear the term clearly defined. The Holocaust Memorial Museum defines the Holocaust as the systemic, bureaucratic, state-sponsored persecution and murder of six million Jews by the Nazi regime and its collaborators. The Nazi party were in political power ruling in Germany at that time. Greetings again, I'm Adam Morgan. Holocaust is a Greek word meaning sacrifice by fire. Simply stated, the Nazis in political power at that time in Germany promoted themselves to be racially superior and Jewish people to be inferior and a threat to society. The Nazi final solution, as they called it, was to arrest and round up Jewish people, incarcerate them in camps, and then murder them in mass, which they did to over six million Jews that World War II thankfully stopped. Holocaust Remembrance Day is recognized to keep the memory of those lost and the event alive so it does not happen again. And because of the nature of men, such is again possible. Scott Levin is the regional director of the Anti-Defamation League. Important to remember that the survivors of the Holocaust came up with the phrase, never again. So it wasn't just about the tragedy that they had gone through. They were also concerned about the future. They wanted to make sure that nobody else went through the horrors, the loss of family, the loss of lives, the loss of just their living the way that they did before the Holocaust. And so they came up with that phrase, never again. And I think that's one of the greatest lessons that we have. It can't always be just about ourselves and what we've gone through, but it's about what the future is going to be. Yeah, and the future becomes important, too, because the people who went through it and even if you didn't go through it at the time, you learned about it, you knew about it from World War II, as those generations passed on, a lot of that memory goes with them. And so if we don't try to keep it alive in some way, then it gets lost, and then we are doomed to repeat it again. That's absolutely true. Here in Colorado, um, as the pool of Holocaust survivors has diminished and they've lost their lives just due to old age, we've lost those firsthand accounts. Yeah. And one of the ways to overcome, for instance, those people, the despicable people that deny that the Holocaust happened, is to be able to tell those firsthand accounts. And that's why it's so important that while we still have these survivors, to have them come speak to people so they can get that firsthand account and pass it on to other people. And we keep seeing this come back. It seems as if the further away we get from when it actually occurred, and as those people pass on, we get this rise of, oh, it never happened. Yeah. You know, um, you really think people would do that? You know, these new generations are like, oh, well, I guess it sounds unreasonable, but it isn't. Well, it's it's hard for anybody really to grasp what genocide is like. Especially uh, on that level. And on that level where you had close to 11 million or over 11 million people that actually died, 6 million Jews and 5 million others who were targeted just because of who they were. But today we have genocides that are continuing. Mm -hmm. um, Sudan, Myanmar, other places around the world. And it's important that if we don't learn these lessons from the past, we are, as the philosopher says, doomed to repeat them. Do we sow those seeds, or maybe people seeking power, sow those seeds with trying to find someone to, to hate to begin with or somebody to blame uh, situations on and then... They look at getting the popular sentiment behind them to do whatever they want to do from that point on. Well, certainly the Jewish experience throughout history has had a lot of that. Um, Jews have been perceived as the other because they didn't conform to the beliefs of the majority of people. And it's always easy to change or redirect people's angst or attention away from what's happening and focus on a small minority of people who are the other. Yeah. And ultimately, that's what happened, I think, to the Jews 
throughout history for a couple thousand years and then culminated in the worst of all tragedies, which was to have one-third of all Jews of Europe exterminated and killed. Yeah, literally. Absolutely. These literally. people, These it's, it's hard to conceive again from where we sit at, at this point in time in our lives and the privilege that many of us have to understand what it would be like to actually be rounded up, taken away to concentration camps, and mm-hmm. exterminated for absolutely no reason other than your religious belief. Yeah, yeah. I was able to see it when we lived in uh, Germany. We went to... Auschwitz is the one in Poland, and Dachau is the one that Dachau. you might have been thinking outside of Munich. Yeah. It was eerie. It is, because... It and, had been cleaned up, but it was still eerie yeah. to know that that happened. I think it was very important that some of these concentration camps have been maintained that they still exist today so people can go see them. Because again, if you don't have the opportunity to go talk to somebody who is a survivor, then the next best thing is just to see where these centers of death are and to see that uh, they are real places where real bad stuff happened. And you said the stories. Now, uh, I know the ADL doesn't have a library there, but you work with people who who do so? Any Holocaust survivors or relatives of such? So you're capturing those stories are being captured there, so that they can be used later. It is so true. People- A few years ago, actually, we're coming up on our 37th annual Governor's Holocaust Remembrance Program on our, on uh, April 24th at Temple Emanuel, and uh, we'll have a Holocaust speaker that will be coming to talk to people. A few years ago, we actually collected the stories of about 35 of the Holocaust survivors that were then living here in the Denver metropolitan area. Yeah, And it's important, again, to be able to get these firsthand accounts. Uh, We're also very fortunate that uh, uh, probably about uh, 15 years ago or a little longer, uh, the Shoah Foundation, headed by Steven Spielberg and the USC and others, including ADL, um, collected the stories of Holocaust survivors from uh, all around the country um, so they could preserve those and be able to replay them. And uh, so not just historians, but people could have access to these stories and understand the tragedies that occurred. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we just did the 50th remembrance of the assassination of Dr. King. Yes. And, uh, you know, people were asked to take a moment to reflect. Uh, some churches were asked to ring their bells at 501 Mountain Time. Um, is there something the general public can do on Holocaust Remembrance Day to to just pause a minute and, and, and think that could happen here? I think that's the greatest idea of all, is to just pause a minute and to think about it. Because, you know, it's very difficult for people to even conceive the tragedy on that large of a scale. And unless you really can put it into your mind, understand how horrific that was, how it wasn't just the Nazis and the people who had this horrific ideology um, to go murder the Jews, but it was also the people, the regular people that allowed it to happen. And that is the key, the people allowing it to happen. That's right. If there are no allies or nobody to stand up and say, this is simply wrong, then it enables the Nazis or today's perpetrators of genocides to to do their horrible actions. I often remember back to um, a very important date in the beginning of November in 1938. Okay. There was a night that was called Kristallnacht, which in English, yeah. yeah, English is the night of broken glass. And what occurred was the Nazis stirred up their troops as well as uh, some of the regular people to go around and smash up the businesses and homes and to harass the Jews. And when they did that, they took a pause and they waited to see, well, how are the rest of the people mm-hmm. around Europe, around the rest of the world reacting to this horrific evening that they yeah. did to destroy these people's lives? And they heard nothing. No one objected to it. And that emboldened them to go then to the next step. I don't know what happened then, but we see now that People feel helpless. There's nothing I can do anyway, so I might as well not say something. And if I say something, they'll come after me, so I'm not going to say something. Is that type of rationalization still in place today? Absolutely. At the Anti-Defamation League, we often see people as being either bystanders or being allies. Obviously, a bystander 
there are a lot of times when you want to be a bystander. You don't feel it's safe to speak out. You're afraid to speak. But the real power comes when you can be an ally and you can stand up for others. At the Anti-Defamation League, it's important to understand our mission since 1913 has been not only to stop anti-Semitism, but it's also to secure justice and fair treatment to all. Because we understand that hate is hate, and whether or not it's hate against people of color, against people because of their religion, because of their place of origin, any of those things, it eventually comes back down to being hate against all of us. Yeah. So if we're not standing yeah. up, for instance, uh, in my organization, if I'm not standing up against Islamophobia or against homophobia, then how can I expect anybody to stand up against anti-Semitism? Yeah, yeah. And we've had in America, if, if, you, if people were thinking, yeah, you know, come on, this is 21st century. It doesn't happen. It can't happen. We have had the Trail of Tears with the Native Americans being Absolutely. moved out of Florida and, and someplace else. We have had internment camps in Colorado with World War II with the Japanese and now we're saying, oh, we, we have to call out the National Guard to the border because these hordes are going to be coming that we don't like. So those seeds and foundations are still there, right? are still popping up. Which is why I think it's important for the rest of us to be allies to try to prevent those situations from occurring, to stand up and say we shouldn't be treating these people as the other. They are people. They are part of humanity just like we are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they are. That is for sure. Uh, tell us a little more about um, No Place for Hate. The breakfast is coming up on the 13th. Uh, we have a wonderful celebration breakfast that's going to be at Mile High Stadium. People can get tickets by going to our website. Mile High Stadium? We're calling it Mile High Stadium oh, again? Oh, thank All you for right. your... <laughs> do we have a new name? Mayor Webb just said, yeah. Yeah, do we have a new name? I don't <laughs> we, know we, what we it is. We don't have a new name, so you know you're at the right place. That's Mile right. It's going to be really a great thing. No Place for Hate is our anti-bias, anti-bigotry program that's in close to 60 schools all around Colorado. And uh, we are going to be awarding banners to the schools that have successfully completed the program. We're expecting probably 350 to 400 people there. We have the mascots of mm -hmm. almost every one of the professional sporting teams that's going uh, to be Rocky there. Rocky and everybody's going to be there. They're going to be teaming up against hate. And so it's going to be a really great morning, a great morning full of uh, kids, educators, and supporters of this program. It's on April 13th at 8 o'clock. Uh, and again, tickets can be obtained by going to denver.adl.org. Okay, yeah, by going to, and you and they can get more information on it there as absolutely, well. Absolutely, absolutely. Well. And you've been doing this program for a while. You said this, it's up to 60 schools now? Yes, this is our, uh, we're just finishing our 10th year. So we're really very proud of that. It's a, a, a great, great uh, program. We started out with two pilot schools and to be able to build it up to, close to 60 schools, means that we're really reaching 60,000 students from Fort Collins in the north to Durango in the south. So most of the school districts then are partnering with you to do that. We are with a lot of the schools um, themselves that actually do it. They make a commitment to come into this program that they're going to be really trying to change their culture and their climate from one that allows hate to one that's respectful. And we do that by going into these schools and having facilitated workshops mm -hmm. where we train the kids to be allies, both in the real world and on the Internet, because we know that right now cyberbullying is a real big problem. I was going to ask you just about that. You've seen this, this program change up over time, because when you started out, that wasn't an issue. That's right. Ten years ago, as the uh, Internet was just beginning to grow, unfortunately, it's one of those things we've all experienced it can be for good or it can be for bad. And unfortunately, it gives a megaphone to people sometimes to speak out in their worst urges. And uh, that's true for kids in school as it is for the rest of us. And so we really are out there trying to come up with strategies to empower the kids to be able to stand up against the bullies and the bigots that they come across. And one great way of doing it is exactly what we were talking about earlier on uh, the important lessons of the Holocaust, it's important for people not to be bystanders, but yeah. instead to stand up and be allies to those that are being bullied. Americans seem to be, gives them sweaty palms as to be able to stand up. It is. It takes a, a certain amount of uh, courage and fortitude to be able to do that. But You have to push them into a corner 
say what they feel or what they mean and say no or say stop. Well, Adam, that's true for some people, but I know that's not true for you, and that's not true for me, and it's not true for a lot of people. And seeing um, people who can really look to try and create cultures of respect for each other where everybody can be safe, it, it, it's not only good because it helps others, but I think it's good because it helps ourselves to yeah. be able to do that. On this edition, Holocaust Awareness Day is April 12th. Our guest is Scott Levin, the Regional Executive Director of the Anti-Defamation League. We will continue our conversation with him on our next edition. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch, stay on your game, and we thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Melissa Moore. Hi, it's Melissa Moore, Mile High Magazine. Thank you so much for being here on this Sunday. I'm excited this week. Kaylee Hanford, who is the president of the Junior League of Denver, is here. And here's what I'm excited about. I hear all the time about the Junior League of Denver, but I think a lot of people like myself are like, but what is it? (laughs) So let's start with the basics. What is the Junior League of Denver? Well, thanks so much for having us, Melissa. Well, thanks for being here. The Junior League of Denver is a women's training organization, and we develop women into civic leaders and put that training to good use, improving the community. So what does that mean in layman's terms? In layman's terms, women is our focus. Awesome. Um, They are the heart and soul of what we do. They guide every decision that we make. We have 1,700 members. And we focus on ensuring that they know how to grow civically, professionally, and personally. Well, you're getting ready to celebrate your 100th anniversary. What are the uh, official dates of that? Yes, we're so excited to celebrate our centennial. It will be June 1st, 2018 Mm -hmm. through May 31st of 2019. And the Junior League of Denver, um, obviously it's of Denver, but the Junior League is big all across the country. Where did it start? Absolutely. So the Junior League of Denver is part of a larger organization founded in 1901 in New York City by Mary Harriman. She was a debutante and got some of her friends together, um, focusing on helping improve life for folks in the New York City area, particularly immigrants. Mm-hmm. And from there, it kind of spread across the country. And it came out here in what year? We're 1918. Okay, there we go. The 100-year <laughs> mark. So if you're following with me, you're like, well, Melissa, that would have been 1918. I'm just seeing if you're paying attention here. Um, so the Junior League 21 and up is is the age criteria to become a member. Um, what are you looking for in your members? Or what did they tell you they're looking for when they join the Junior League? Sure. So I think everyone joins the Junior League for different reasons. Um, but really, we say that you, grow, you join to give grow and get connected. So Mm -hmm. we give back to our community, we grow individually and as an organization, and then we get connected to one another and also the Denver Metro community. So it's obviously a good place to network. Absolutely. You know, Um, but as we're talking about growing and being civic minded, what kinds of things do you help women do to become that kind of a leader? So we have a lot of internal training programs to get women experience in a a smorgasbord of areas. Mm -hmm. Um, Our organization is set up under numerous different councils and each of those councils hold a niche. And so folks can get experience in their wheelhouse Mm -hmm. or learn something entirely new like public policy, for instance. Okay. Okay. So it's really, it is like you were saying, it's a great place to come in, connect, grow as a person and as a woman. Um, What do you hear from men? Are men allowed into the junior league or we, we, we love them, but it's for women. Well, we are a women's trading organization, but we've got a lot of strong men by our side and our community partners and nonprofit partners and business partners. And well, and that's what I figured. But it's so funny because it is such a different day and age. It's one of those questions like, you know, five years ago, I probably wouldn't ask you that. And today it's like, you know what? I probably should ask that. Well, and if you're Terrell Davis, you can you can uh, (laughs) keynote our our journey fundraiser just a couple of weeks ago. Well, see, that's fantastic. So absolutely, there is a place. And I love it, too, because there is that. Um, coming together, that partnership within the community, men, women, kids, adults. Absolutely. We think all all boats rise. Yep, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about the program that you've got with the Gathering Place. 
Sure. So we've been a partner of The Gathering Place for over 30 years now. Um, Our members serve meals there um, on the regular. Mm -hmm. And then we also sponsor all of the milk for the kiddos at The Gathering Place. Um, It's a really special organization and we're lucky to call them a partner. You know, we really are lucky here in Denver to have The Gathering Place. Explain to someone not familiar with The Gathering Place what they do. It's anyone who needs a hand up. So uh, The Gathering Place is Denver's only daytime drop-in shelter. Um, So it's a really phenomenal place, super special. We hold it near and dear and um, are glad to be able to support them in any way we can. That's wonderful. You've also got, we were talking about it a few minutes ago, programs that provide trained volunteers out into the community. Tell me a little bit about those programs. Sure. So our two major programs, the first is Leaders United in Volunteer Service or LOVES. Um, This one is uh, near and dear to my heart. It was held last September. It's an annual day of giving back for the Junior League. so we had about 200 members show up all in the Globeville, Elyria, and Swansea neighborhoods mm-hmm. and gave back about 700 hours of community service in one day with several community partners. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes. And your other one is called Done in a Day? It is. It's our uh, short-time high-impact program. We basically put trained volunteers out into the community to help with projects, and we've partnered with Anchor Center for the Blind, Ronald McDonald House, Food Bank of the Rockies, lots of great partners there. And those are all wonderful organizations. And I think sometimes, you know, even myself, I'll be like, okay, where do those organizations get their volunteers? And I think that's fantastic. From the Junior League of Denver. From the Junior League of Denver. (laughs) It really is great. If you're just joining me, we're talking to Kaylee Hanford, who is the president of the Junior League of Denver. Really appreciate you being here on this Sunday. Um, And once again, the Junior League of Denver, to sum it up in layman's terms, what is your mission? We're a women's training organization. And what are you training women for? We are training women to give back to the community and grow individually and personally and as a greater organization. I think a lot of times women want to get involved. They want to, you know, be more involved in the community and connect with other women. And in this day and age of social media, mm-hmm. you know, we have a lot of friends online and we do a lot of connecting online, but you still want that one-on-one personal connection. And if you haven't known where to go, I think the Junior League of Denver is a fantastic place to start. And you're talking about being members. The the criteria is 21 and over and being a woman. Correct. And that's kind of it. Absolutely. And then how much time do you ask of your members to be involved? Or is it kind of a personal situation? That's a great question. Um, The level of involvement really just depends on the individual person. Um, We have people who want to spend all day, every day giving back with the Junior League of Denver. And we also have women who can only give a couple hours every month. Mm -hmm. Um, Neither one is better or the other than the other. And um, we're just happy to have anyone who's engaged and wants to give back and grow um, and get connected to 1,700 other women in Denver. That's a huge number. It's big. And especially, you know, it's, it's almost like it, it reaches out. It's like that spider web that just kind of travels. And if you're, if you're involved in all these different organizations and volunteering, plus doing leadership, and do you ever have people that come in and say, hey, here's what I want to work on. Here's my goal. And you help them find that spot? Definitely. Um, I think one of the great things about the league is that it's a safe place to learn and you can have access to opportunities that you may not have in your normal daytime life. Mm -hmm. So um, there's opportunities in fundraising and public policy and marketing and communications and um, HR Mm -hmm. and helping to manage the foundation. We've got all sorts of opportunities and ways to get involved. Um, So there's a lot of different paths through the league. And I think that is such a great point because when you think about, and and so many people have two or three careers in their lifetime and you find yourself wanting to transition and try something new and you're like, okay, I would love to do this. I'd love to get more involved with community policy and government, but I don't know where to get involved. They can get involved with the junior league and you're right, train and learn in an environment that's not intimidating where you don't feel like you have the stupid questions. Right. We have tons of members who say, you know, they they will literally say, I owe my career to the Junior League. Mm. Um, The things I learned, the skills, the connections, the experiences um, is what helped them grow. That's so wonderful. Okay. well, speaking of I don't want to say politics, but government, um, do you get involved in advocacy at the Capitol? 
We do. Okay. Um, on a non-partisan level. Okay, that's what I figured. I, that's what I figured. As Expl- most nonprofits do. Sure, sure. Explain what you do. So the Junior League of Denver has was the first league in the country to hire a government affairs specialist in 1987. So we have professionals working alongside our volunteers at the state capitol to track legislation that matters to us mm-hmm. and get involved when it's appropriate. Um, just to make sure that we're advocating, especially for women and children. Well, and what a year to be involved. I mean, it's kind of the year of the woman, you know. Yeah. I mean, we have seen it all across the country. We've seen it in every every sector that women are speaking up and women are finding their voice and saying, here's what's important to me. Here's what I believe in. Here's what I stand for. So if you're thinking, yeah, I want to get involved and you haven't known where to start, Junior League of Denver. Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. So how has the league changed over time? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So I think um, since we date back to 1918, our models changed a little bit over the years. It used to be that we were the ones who started things. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a saying that the Junior League of Denver is behind a lot of things in Denver. And what's changed is now we're in front of a lot of things in Denver. Um, We used to create programs and and pass them off to partners. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nowadays, we focus on making sure that our members are out front and center helping alongside organizations and that we can also financially support other nonprofits in the area. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the financial support, how do you raise money? How's the Junior League raise money? Absolutely. We've got a a variety of fundraisers Mm -hmm. um, from Mile High Holiday Mart to The Journey um, to our cookbooks. We are always actively fundraising to support the mission of the league and help our members uh, become better. Well, speaking of membership, and hopefully this isn't a delicate question, but anytime you join something and you become a member, there's usually a fee. Is there a fee to join the Junior League? There are, yeah. The the dues are, they range depending on the experience that you want with the league, mm-hmm. um, but they're around a couple hundred dollars. Okay. And I would say that they're well worth their money. You get access to training and people and experiences that if I were in my everyday life, I wouldn't get to see. Right. Um, so I think that it's well worth the money and... And um, it's definitely some place that you also learn to call home. Mm-hmm. So um, the money bit of it, you know, absolutely, it's an investment in yourself. Well, and um, they but always talk an, about having a little bit of skin in the game. Yeah, you definitely. know, Because there, there is something like I've invested money, I've invested time. Um, you were talking about your cookbooks a minute ago, and your cookbooks yes. are incredibly well known. They are. I've got them in my house. So <laughs> as, I know. And, as you should. Yeah, they are some <laughs> of the best cookbooks out there. Um, and you know, like, think about it. Col- Colorado, is it Color or Color? Calore. Calore. Oh, Calore. Oh, mm-hmm. We're okay. fancy. Yeah, I know. I'm like, give me that Colorado <laughs> color cookbook over there. But they are. They are fantastic. Are you guys talking about putting another one out there? We are. <gasps> Yay! Okay, give me a, give me the skinny on that. Well, um, so we have, this will be our sixth cookbook. We've been doing them since 1978. We've raised about 2.1, or we've sold about 2.1 million cookbooks. We've raised about $7 million. Wow. And in summer 2019, our sixth cookbook will drop. It is Centennial Celebrations in honor of our 100th okay. anniversary. So right after the end of the 100th anniversary. Exactly. We'll keep like you it. hanging on. Okay. Okay. And speaking of uh, the 100 year anniversary, um, you're giving away money. Is that right? We are. Okay. <laughs> a lot of money too, like $100,000. Yeah, that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. What are you doing? <laughs> we are giving away $100,000 in honor of our 100th anniversary in granting over the course of three years. Uh, Granting is something that the league has been a part of for many, many years. And this year, our board has made a recommitment to doing that. Okay. What are the categories? How do they get money for a grant? So we have the um, typical grant application that Mm -hmm. any nonprofit fills out. um, And we're giving away grants to nonprofits and community partners. Um, The denominations vary and it can range this year. Anyone who's been an existing partner of the league um, to the next couple of years will widen that scope a little bit. Okay. Okay. So really, you're going to find out more information when you get the application. Absolutely. And you can find out more at JLD.org. Okay. I was just getting ready to ask you about that. So tell me a little bit personally, um, and we've only got a couple of more minutes here left, why you got involved with the Junior League, what it means to you. Sure. I joined the Junior League just to get connected to other women. 
Um, I moved here after college. Denver felt so small. Um, I've been in the league for 10 years now, and I stay because these women are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. They are smart. They're sassy. um, They're on top of their game. They're passionate, and they're giving, kind. It's just um, a really gracious environment to hang out in. Oh, I love um, that word. When you leave your home or leave Mm -hmm. your job or leave school. Um, it's just a nice place to be and nice people to be around. And do you find that women come from all walks of life joining the junior league? Definitely. We have a diversity and inclusion commitment. Um, and the, the folks you meet, they've got all sorts of stories and all sorts of paths. And it's really eye-opening to meet people who have different perspectives than you and challenge your mm-hmm. opinion. Um, it's really a safe place to grow. That's wonderful. All right. So if you've been listening, you're like, okay, I want to join the Junior League of Denver. You know, it is. It's exciting. It's a great way for women to grow and connect and nurture maybe ideas and dreams that you have. Uh, what's the first thing they need to do? They need to visit JLD.org or send us an email at join at JLD.org. Our recruitment sessions open every spring. Um, and we are always, always looking for new fabulous women to join us. Okay, so the recruitment is open right now. In the next couple of months, we'll open up. Okay, yep. all right, so get everything ready. Be thinking about it. <laughs> Definitely bookmark that website and the website again. JLD.org. All right. Kaylee Hanford of the Junior League of Denver president there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Melissa, for having me. I'm Melissa Moore. This is Mile High Magazine. Thanks for hanging out with us on this Sunday morning. You have been listening to Mile High Magazine. A look at the issues and people shaping Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. If you have a suggestion for a future program or a question, please send an email to publicaffairs at bonneville.com. Thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine.